When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm Matt Brown, the host of the channel. I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history, focusing on environment and science. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrea Duffy about her new book, No Man's Land, Pastoralism and French Environmental Policy in the 19th Century Mediterranean World, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2019. Dr. Andrea Duffy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much for coming on as well. And before we really dive into your wonderful book, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Happy to, Matt. Thank you. Um, So I'm a world environmental historian, um, and I currently direct the international studies major at Colorado State University. Um, So that's an interesting combination for me, and it's a little bit of a circuitous path that I took to get here. Um, As a world environmental historian, I study primarily patterns and relationships across cultures. So um, this book, for example, looks at uh, common themes around the Mediterranean, including really three case studies um, in the Middle East, North Africa, and um, Southern France. So very much cross-cultural, but um, I'm really fascinated by the kinds of patterns that emerge, especially when you look from an environmental perspective. Since I've been at CSU directing international studies, I think my, my work and my research interests have taken an even broader turn. Um, I am particularly interested in incorporating uh, sources and methods from other disciplines like geography and the natural sciences. Um, My current uh, pet interest is climate history. uh, And you see a little bit of that in this book, but I think even more since then. Um, and, uh, And I also am particularly concerned about the contemporary implications of history. And I think that's that's the international studies influence as well. Um, Before uh, taking a foray into international studies, I was primarily focused on the past. And and now I'm I'm really I still think about the past, but I'm really interested in how the past impacts the present and lessons we can learn from it. That's a that's a wonderful intro to um, both your background and and the 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 book um now would you just like to to just give a brief introduction about um of nomadic lands or sorry no man's land (laughs) sure (laughs) sure um so nomad's land is a mediterranean history or that's what i'm calling it um and what i mean by that what because it's sort of mediterranean is sort of a contested term or contested uh construct what I mean by it is that what one of the things I'm hoping to do with this book is connect parts of the Mediterranean and, and just regions in general that um, scholars typically don't connect, in, in particular, Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. So I think it makes sense 
um, because they shared common environmental features as well as uh, cultural patterns and um, political connections as well. And this book highlights a lot of those. So it's really a Mediterranean story. Um, and it tells that story through three case studies, one in Provence in the south of France. Um, so that's sort of the northern case study, one in southwestern Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey. So that's the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and one in Algeria, which was a French colony um, during the time during the 19th century. So that's the the South Pole or the South End. Um, and, and by using these three case studies, it really tries to access developments all around the Mediterranean, but it, it shows how those developments were connected in a way that I think justifies the use of the Mediterranean as a concept. So that's part of it. Um, and then it's, it's very much an environmental history. It's framed through um, relations between environments and human societies. Um, it, and I think environmental history particularly makes sense to consider across borders. You know, it, environmental features don't stop at political borders. Um, and the, the kinds of um, developments that my book engages in particular definitely cross borders. And then even the characters themselves, um, some of the key players in my story are French foresters and nomads or shepherds, um, and they absolutely crossed borders as well um, in multiple ways and had very close relationship with the environment. So it's very much an environmental history. And then finally, I think, I, I like to think anyway, maybe because I enjoy these kinds of stories, it's a little bit of a mystery. Um, it's trying to solve a mystery. So it's a little bit of a detective story. Uh, and that that central question, that mystery is really what happened to all the sheep? So if you go to the Mediterranean, really anywhere around the Mediterranean today, it, this is a little less true in the South and East, but um, you, it's likely that you won't see any sheep or goats. Um, you may, but they're certainly not everywhere. But if you read literature that refers to periods before the 19th century, sheep were everywhere. This was the land of sheep. So my study is really an investigation of what happened to all the sheep? Where did they go? Why did they disappear? Um, and the answer, it turns out, has a lot to do with politics. So um, I don't know if you want me to summarize the book or go into another question. You know, I think we could go into another question. I, that, that, was a, that was really, uh, that was a good summary, or that was like a good introduction to, to the topic itself. Um, and uh, just, I'm, but but getting into um, the 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 organization of the book, one, it's really, I, I, it's fantastic. Like I was, I was immersed just because of the way that you were able to to craft your narrative. Um, so so definitely kudos on that. But let's just begin with like chapter one. Um, it, it, it's titled "The Land of the Golden Fleece." Um, and it, it seemed to be a, a deeper history leading into to the 19th century, which is your focus. And, and it really, you can really see the, the, um, that, it is a, is, that it is a land of sheep. So uh, would you like to talk about just kind of the, these, these foundational um, cultural slash environmental origins of, of this story? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. That first chapter tries to set the stage or establish a foundation um, before the 19th century, because the 19th century is when everything changed in, in all three case studies. Um, and it, it does that also by reinforcing this, this environmental framework um, and, and telling the story of the land. So describing the land, um, highlighting connections or, or similarities, ecological similarities um, in the three case studies and the three contexts around the Mediterranean, but also pointing out important differences. So um, I don't want to give the impression that the Mediterra Mediterranean environment is uniform. It's not. Uh, rainfall patterns um, and rainfall variability were quite different in um, Algeria than they were in Provence and also in Anatolia. So there are important differences as well. And that first chapter emphasizes those differences. Um, another thing that it tries to do uh, is give some more, some deeper social and political history, uh, and again, emphasize connections 
across the three case studies and around the Mediterranean in general, as well as some important distinctions. Um, and in the process, I think it contests some commonly held perceptions. Uh, so, for example, um, in eastern Anatolia, uh, well, in the eastern Mediterranean, in Anatolia, um, the that period during that period it was under the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire made actually made a lot of concessions to nomads. Um, so there's there's sort of a a, a common perception that um, that nomads were antithetical to the state and that the state was always trying to get rid of them or trying to get them to settle. But um, when you take a closer look, it, it it turns out that the state, well, first of all, couldn't, um, didn't have the, the power um, prior to the 19th century um, to get these nomadic populations to settle and to stay settled. Um, and then it was also, it also saw the advantage of leveraging nomadic groups and the leaders of nomadic groups as a sort of provincial authority. So that was more more of a pattern than, um, than there were sedentarization campaigns in the early modern period in Ottoman Anatolia. But, um, for it, you know, in, in the cases that they existed, it was usually just sort of a game where they were like, OK, now you need to settle and become farmers. And the nomads would be like, OK, um, but next year we're going to run away and become nomads again. And then the pattern would repeat itself. Um, and the reason that the government, I should be clear, the reason the government had an interest in settling them at all was because it made them easier to count for census purposes, to tax. Um, and also nomads had a little bit of a pesky habit of preying on villagers, um, which could be seen as a symbiotic relationship because they also provided valuable services to um, farmers and villagers, but um, they could uh, they could be troublesome at times as well. So that's the pattern in the Ottoman uh, in the Ottoman realm, and also to, to a large degree in Anatolia, because that was part of the Ottoman Empire as well, although provincial. So it was a little bit different, and, and there was more local authority. It's interesting how similar it actually is in France, and and this is one of my main points that uh, France and, and European history are often considered to be very different than Ottoman history and Middle Eastern history. Um, to the point where even the the people, the shepherds involved, are called different things. In the Ottoman case, they're called nomads or um, semi-nomads, um, or or you know a, a few. There are a few other terms, um, but they're they're fairly specific to that region. Whereas shepherds in the south of France are called shepherds. Sometimes they're called transhumant shepherds, um, but they're never called nomads. However, they had very similar patterns. And, and this is another thing I talk about in, in that first chapter. Um, I point out that uh, whereas there's this perception, again, kind of a misconception that French shepherds were, you know, that there's this image of the lonely shepherd. There's this idea that they would travel by themselves. Um, and you kind of see these, these bucolic images of the shepherd, you know, with, with all the sheep gathered around him. In fact, they usually traveled in groups um, with other shepherds. So many, many different people were involved in uh, especially larger herds or a combination of herds. And they often took their families with them uh, and lived in fairly simple accommodations in the mountains in the summertime, but, you know, still like cabins and things. So they, they had, um, they had an established home in the mountains as well as an established home on the plain. So they're seasonal um, and, and they also traveled long distances, sometimes upwards of 500 miles. So their seasonal commute was very similar around the Mediterranean and even the social practices were more similar than people often like to think. So I think all of those things together help sort of establish a foundation for the rest of the story. They by By providing an image of what life was like around the Mediterranean and, and how critical pastoralism was to that life, um, which sets up the story for what changed and how dramatically it changed in the 19th century. Yes. And that speaks back to that, that mystery you're talking about. But before we get there, do you want to talk about the Algerian experience just to round out all of the Mediterranean poles? <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Um, so um, like I said, Algeria was uh, part of the Ottoman Empire until 1830, 
um, when it was occupied by France, invaded by France, and then um, the French occupation, French colonization of Algeria was a, a long and, and very painful period um, that ended with a long and very painful war in the 1960s. So, um, which is after the period that I look at, but even in the 19th century, um, I think a misconception there that, um, that that I'm certainly not the first person to point out, but um, but it, it persists nonetheless, is that France went in, um, pacified the country, and it was a French colony. Um, this is a misconception, or this misconception exists partly because France wanted to pretend it was that way, but the reality is it took... Mm, 50 years or more um, for France to gain anything approaching control of Algeria. Um, and, and even in the late 19th century, there were still significant regions that were outside of French control. But um, an important part of my story, and this, this is getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I think it's, it's important. It relates to um, that foundational aspect as well. Um, an important, a very central component of France's effort to pacify and control Algeria was forestry. It used environmental policy um, to try and gain control over the country and the countryside. Um, but similar to uh, Anatolia and Provence, before uh, the, the arrival of um, French imperial agents, um, Algeria was largely inhabited by nomadic pastoralists, especially in the countryside. Um, there, there was certainly a significant population of farmers as well, and there were some urban centers um, such as Algiers. But, um, but again, pastoralists had uh, played an important role and a, and a largely symbiotic role with um, with farmers and and other members of the population before um, French colonists arrived. Thank you for that, and 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 that that really sets us up for what happened in the 19th century, which is kind of what your, your second chapter, um, Black Sheep, the inter intellectual roots of Mediterranean environmental policy gets at. Um, do you, I mean, what happened in the 19th century, especially with your case study of forestry to, uh, that, to really illustrate, or that really illustrates environmental, um, the relation of humans to the environment? Yeah. So, um, I think I'll answer this question by kind of um, drawing from the second and the third chapter. So the second chapter um, attempts to, and as, as a little bit of an aside, this was a real, really difficult book to organize. <laughs> so I appreciated your comment at the beginning that, um, that I, you think I did a good job of organizing it. It's really, I mean, a, a comparative study, um, a multicultural study, um, a broad study like this is it's really difficult to to organize and um, and I thought about it a lot. So um, that first chapter kind of lays a, an environmental foundation. The second chapter lays what I what I'd like to think of as an intellectual foundation. Um, and then the third chapter builds on both of them. So the 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 third chapter um, looks specifically at the development of French scientific forestry, but it. It, that intellectual development relates very much to these perceptions that I talk about in chapter two, black sheep. So, um, so a little bit more about those perceptions. Um, so in, in French modern society, especially as uh, scientific forestry began to develop and it was influenced largely by Prussian forestry or German forestry in the early late 18th, early 19th century, there was this perception that sheep were bad, um, that they were really, uh, they had a, a, a majorly negative impact on the environment. So specifically, there was this concern that if, um, if sheep were anywhere near a forest, especially near young trees, so saplings, that they would um, just eat the tree and the trees would not grow. This isn't true, <laughs> um, but the reason people thought it was true was because they looked at the Mediterranean, um, and the Mediterranean looks very different than the forests of Northern Europe. So even forests in the Mediterranean, um, forests in the Mediterranean tend to be really open. Uh, the trees are sort of more scraggly. Uh, they're they're really more like 
large bushes versus uh, the forests of Northern Europe. So where modern European forestry was developed in, in Prussia, um, now Northern Germany, as well as the French forestry school in Nancy, which is also in Northern, Northeastern France, um, the forests were these high growth, lush, um, thick, you know, dark green spaces. Um, and so when they compared that environment to the Mediterranean, and also when they read uh, accounts from, um, from history, including like uh, antiquity, uh, which they were particularly interested in during the Enlightenment and, uh, and the you know, uh, scientific developments while um, French forestry was developing, um, or scientific literature while French forestry was developing, they asked themselves, well, what happened? You know, why does it look so different? Because, um, you know, Romans would describe the Mediterranean region as being lush and, um, and, and like a, a, a green area site for growth um, and uh, abundant, um, abundant trees and, uh, and harvests and that kind of thing. Um, mostly because they had a very different perspective coming from, Italy and the Mediterranean themselves than, than the French did. But the French didn't necessarily think about that. And this, this part of the argument draws a lot on Diana Davis's uh, resurrecting the, the granary of, of Rome. So there's a lot, a lot of great stuff there. But um, as a result of these perceptions or really misperceptions, misconceptions, um, environmental misconceptions, the, the sheep and consequently the shepherds um, got a lot of negative press um, by French scientists and intellectuals and political officials in the early 19th century. And as a result, when France produced its first, its first modern forestry code in 1827, there is a lot in there about sheep and goats and preventing them from going anywhere near forests. So the question then is, well, what does this have to do with Mediterranean and, and nomads? Um, it, 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 it's a problem, not because the sheep were grazing in forests in their summer and winter pastures. Pastures are different than forests. But the concern was that because they were transhuman, because they were mobile, um, because they moved seasonally between summer and winter pastures, the concern was that they would pass through forests and they would destroy the trees along the way. And so as a result, uh, the French forest administration went to great lengths to try not just keep sheep out of forests of any kind, but also to keep sheep and shepherds from migrating seasonally. So to end uh, mobile pastoralism to end transhuman practices um, because they 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 were concerned about their environmental impact. And then I can also add another layer on that. Um, the the result. Um, <laughs> this is again getting ahead of myself a little bit. It, it wasn't necessarily beneficial for the environment because uh, other things stepped in like industry and commercial agriculture. Um, but I think the foresters involved, so the, the, the people who crafted the French Forest Code of 1827 um, and the forest agents who worked in Provence, and then some of those same agents actually traveled to Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman Empire to develop scientific forestry in the Ottoman Empire, as well as in Algeria. And the same forest code that was applied in France was applied to Algeria, even though it was a very different environment um, in the, in the mid 19th century. So I think those forest agents, even though they were in some ways misguided, they meant well, they really, really thought, they really believed that uh, mobile pastoralism had a negative environmental impact. Um, and they really wanted to um, kind of save the planet in some ways they were misguided, but um idealistic uh, sort of proto-environmentalists. And if there are villains in the story, <laughs> it is then the politics or the politicians, the policymakers who took the arguments of those French foresters, the French forest agents, and used them for their own political means. So um, French policymakers, as well as 
Ottoman administrators, they had their own reasons for wanting to end mobile pastoralism, um, get the nomads to settle, get the shepherds to settle. And primarily they were about making it easier to count them um, and to tax them. They had their own reasons, but they used these environmental arguments as justification in Provence, Algeria, and Ottoman Anatolia. Yeah, and, and, and you get into that, especially in the later part of the book where mm-hmm. um, the nomads or, or the, the transhuman uh, shepherds become these scapegoats, correct? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and, and especially, I guess I said I was going to cover two chapters two and three, but really when I'm talking about the application of French forestry um, in the Ottoman Empire and Algeria, um, that's particularly detailed in, in chapter four, um, the forest for the trees, um, and how, how these ideals that were specific to France, and, and really, I mean, they were promulgated in northern France, not the Mediterranean, but they were based on, a, a, on that difference, on that environmental difference and a, a perceptions about it. Um, and then they were applied um, kind of wholesale around the Mediterranean um, to, you know, not so great results for societies and the environment. Yeah. And one thing I really appreciate, Aiden, and I think I, I, it really solidified by the end, but I was picking it up all the way through was the, your presentation of how these forests are, are starting to, they're, they're recognizing that there's something wrong with the forest, especially, I think it starts in France and then it moves to Algeria and then, and then, um, uh, the Ottoman Empire is kind of they're they're later in the game, um, but but like one one quote that you um, have in I think this is the second chapter. You talk about the the violent winds in uh, province and each spring and fall, and they were recast as as the child of men and a result of of these forest clearings and tree cuttings, and then like really like goats and and, and sheep, as you said. Um, and and one thing I really realized was the the visibility of trees are mm. is is a driving force to that. Is is that something that you recognize in terms of recognizing kind of greater climatic like destructions or, or changes? Like what being able to see something like a tree or a forest like dissolve or at least the perception of it dissolving? Um like is that a is that a big driver for, for these proto-environmentalists? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, you know, it even is for for that misconception about the Mediterranean, you know, a lot of these foresters, not all of them, some of them are from southern France, but a lot of them came from northern France, uh, and had certain ideas about how the environment was supposed to look, um, and how it was supposed to feel too. So wind, wind is a feeling and, and if you've, if you've ever felt the Mistral, it's, I mean, it's not just wind, it's, like the description of it, the sort of the, the personification of it um, is totally understandable. It's violent. And there's a similarly violent wind in Algeria. Um, and so in some ways, these these were foreign environmental features, even for French foresters. Um, and, in, and in a way, and I, I talk about this in a book, uh, the attempt to control um, environments and people in Provence, even in even in Provence, was similar to internal colonization because uh, it it was still um, in many cases uh, like or an example of people coming from outside and telling local populations what they couldn't couldn't do and what was best for them, um, and they were guided by these. It, as much as anything, these images and these experiences of nature that were um, that were foreign to them and and that they kind of feared. And another important um, element, I think, that relates to what you're what you're getting at or what you're suggesting with imagery is fire. Fire was something that was always uh, it was a constant part of the Mediterranean world. Um, and for inhabitants of the Mediterranean world, it wasn't necessarily a scary thing. Uh, it could be certainly, but it was also a tool. So pastoralists, for example, used fire to regenerate, to, to create and regenerate pasture. 
Um, that was another thing that French foresters very much cracked down upon um, everywhere they could. And in every instance, they hated it. They hated fire. They thought that fire, um, forest fire, wildfires were just in every, in every case bad. Um, and that's another interesting uh, misconception that's taken a long time for uh, modern scientific forestry to, 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 to kind of reconcile or, or, um, or readdress. Only recently has fire and controlled burns and that kind of thing, um, have, have these, these things really been recognized by the Forest Service, including the American Forest Service, but also in European contexts and around the world as, as being something useful and something good and even something necessary to prevent larger conflagrations. But in the 19th century, fire was seen as fundamentally bad, as scary, as sort of evil, um, same with the wind. And these are all, th- and then there were other disasters. So um, landslides, floods, the, these are just a few of the things that were blamed on mobile pastoralists in, in all of the contexts, all of the Mediterranean contexts that I talk about. Yeah. And, and I, when you were talking about sheep earlier, I totally wrote sheep and fire as, yeah. as these two negative elements that, that are, are um, associated with, uh, with, with shepherds or, or nomads. And, and this, this kind of also gets into the, the colonial or imperial discussion um, that, that you have throughout, where you have these different levels. You have the, the foresters on the ground, but then you have, they're also dealing with people back in the, the metropole mm-hmm. who, are, who have their own set of interests um, that seem to be more based off of control and, and domination over, over the landscape so they can actually colonize and, and, and improve or um, create civilization. Um, and, and I think that that speaks to chapter chapters three and, and four and then, uh, you know, throughout. But is that something you want to talk about? Maybe these these diverging and maybe, uh, I guess, diverging and converging interests of, of these different parties? Yeah, I, I, I mean, another thing I'm trying to do with this book is is tease out the different players and their interests. Um, I think there's too often a dichotomy between colonizers and colonized, um, and, and as well as I would say between colony and metropole. Um, I I think there are important nuances and layers that kind of get lost in those dichotomies. Um, and you know, an example of them is these foresters who were imperial agents, um, but they they were they were really trying to be advocates for the environment. Um, I mean, if there is a selfish interest, that was primarily it in, in many cases. Um, there are also colonial players who, who were in many ways advocates for um, local populations in Algeria, for example. Um, so the, the Arab bureaus um, served as offices. They were largely uh, military organizations or run through the military, and they were often in regions that were less well controlled and that had a larger indigenous population. Um, so rural areas in particular, rather than cities, which is where most of the French and European colonists settled. Um, and the the Arab bureaus weren't always successful in advocating for indigenous inhabitants and, and you know, nomads and other um, Algerians, but they, they did try. Um, they were more likely to speak Arabic um, and, uh, in, in a lot of the, the sources that I read, um, their correspondence with, the uh, um, Algerian, the French Algerian governor and the central administration back in Paris, um, they're, they're really trying to, to, to tell the French government to back off, you know, <laughs> they're like, you know, for your own good, you're trying to ask, you're squeezing this population too much and they're going to, to fight back. And they actually did. There was a, a major, um, revolt in Algeria that was then um, put down within a year and uh, resulted in an even more uh, an even worse situation for the colonized. Um, but that's a, another example of sort of these these nuances or these different players who um, I think are, are a little bit misrepresented just as the colonizers or colonial agents and 
Um, another example of that is in, in talking about forest agents in Algeria, there were Algerian, indigenous Algerian forest agents, particularly in regions where um, the French had less control. Um, they required they required a buddy system, um, and French forest agents always had to be accompanied by an Algerian forest agent, um, it, which I think is just really interesting. And I I think the character of those people, those individuals who served as forest agents, um, it, it's it's fascinating. In many cases, they were kind of ostracized by their compatriots. Um, by, or by their community because they were seen as working for the enemy. Um, but on the other hand, they had insights um, and connections that the French forest agents definitely didn't have. And being a forest agent was a very dangerous job. Um, there was a, a pretty high um, death rate among forest agents, especially in colonial contexts, but even in France, um, because, you know, they did things that were unpopular, like kick people out of forests or prevent people from gathering wood or um, or staying in forests or, or setting fires in forests or, you know, really doing anything that they weren't supposed to be doing. Um, and sometimes uh, putting people in prison or exacting a fine. Um, in the case of Algeria, there were there were all sorts of fines. There were usually fines and forced labor um, for Algerian, for indigenous groups and um, and tribes, nomadic tribes that um, that were seen to be um, using the forest in in ways that were no longer legal, but you know that had been common before the French arrived, and then uh, they they were fined in ways they could never afford to pay, and um, they were consequently even more marginalized and in debt to the French government. So. I think, I mean, you know, the, the binary is useful, um, the colonial colonized binary and the, the metropole um, rural binary, but there are also a lot of gray areas that I, I, I sometimes think those are the most interesting areas. And um, and I don't know, I mean, there are a lot of examples, but I think I'll just give a few because they're, <laughs> I could go on and on about this. No, and, and that's one of the, the awesome things about your book is that there's so much here and you, you, you're comparing these three different case studies, but like, I found myself wanting to be like, oh, I want to know more about what's going like on in, in each yeah. one of those situations. And you could write like, I'm sure you could easily write, you know, three different books about these situations. Um, and it, I mean, of course it would be a different, different project. Um, but I, I, I also do like, uh, like these, these comparisons that you're able to draw across um, these 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 different um, these different cultures and, and geographies as well and and kind of on that note um, looking at Anatolia and um, the Ottoman Empire uh, do you want to talk about how the the French Forest Service or the French Forest agents came in and helped kind of establish an Ottoman school of forestry and and help help the the Ottomans cultivate their own set of forestry policies yeah so I. So um, just because I this this is one of the one of the this was one of the discoveries for me that really led me to the story. I actually started from an Ottoman perspective. Um, I was originally planning to do an Ottoman history of nomads, so a little bit more like what you were just saying, more in depth about that particular history. Um, but what I discovered just in my preliminary research was that the history of Ottoman scientific forestry um, was largely French. Uh, the the two um, initial agents who jump-started forestry in the mid-19th century were French. They were French uh, foresters who had trained at the French Forest School. One of them, actually both of them were from the south of France originally, so they, they had that Mediterranean history. Um, and they all, but they also trained by training at the French forestry school in Northern France, they had this idea of what forests were supposed to look like and about this Mediterranean environmental decline, um, that they thought was even more egregious in the Ottoman empire, um, because they believed that the Ottoman government through its corruption, through its decline, et cetera, et cetera. This is when the, the, or 
around this time is when the Ottoman Empire gets branded as the sick man of Europe. Um, they thought it had squandered its its lush forest resources. And so they saw themselves as sweeping in to help save it by establishing a, a modern forest regime there. Um, and, and again, you know, I think they were trying to, they were trying to help, <laughs> but, um, but they were largely misguided and they were also largely unsuccessful because they didn't have the, um, the authority um, or the, just the people power to implement the practices um, that they advocated for. Um, but they did establish, uh, the, they established a, basically a textbook for Ottoman foresters, and they trained a generation of Ottoman foresters, so people who are actually Turkish, um, and they translated the French forestry textbook into um, Ottoman Turkish. And so they, by doing so, they really implemented these French and more broadly Europe, European perceptions and practices into the Ottoman context. And similar to the French case, the Ottoman government's interest in all of this was largely to have a additional justification for and ability to settle nomads. Um, and they did. They, they finally mostly succeeded um, in, the, in the mid to late 19th century. Um, and those nomads who did not settle became increasingly marginalized. They were no longer these regional um, sort of strongholds of um, that, that might challenge central authority. Um, and actually one of the, the sort of the, the initial spark for this book dates back to when I studied abroad in Turkey as an undergrad, and I got to see some of the remaining nomadic groups. And um, they were, they were not a, a particularly imposing bunch. They were, you know, kind of, mar they very obviously marginalized, um, and also, uh, in, in many ways, a dying breed. There are, not, there are just not very many of them um, around anymore. And that's largely a result of these changes in policy um, over the course of the 19th century. Yeah, and, and your, the second part of your book really gets into the mar marginalization of, of mo mobile pastoralism. Um, and, you know, go, kind of going back to... to Algeria as well. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting how they, they they seem to be the most active in their their revolutionary stance, where some of them were were possibly ar uh, arsonists um, mm -hmm. who were who were lit lighting fires not just for um, pasture or to, to promote, promote pasture land, but but to actually um, rebel against the the colonial rule. Um, but um, but in all of these places, there you 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 demonstrate active and passive forms of, of resistance. Do you wanna do you wanna talk about that, especially as as we move into the 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 mid to, to late nineteenth century? Sure. Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit about sources too. So the the advantage of doing a comparative history or in a, a compare a broad comparative study like this. Well, first of all, I think this is what I'm best at, and it's it's sort of what excites me to see patterns and connections that are that are across broad spaces like this. But um, the other advantage is again that it exposes these kinds of patterns that um, that you might not catch or even be aware of if you're focused on a, a particular a, a particular context. The disadvantage, or one of the disadvantages, is that you lose a lot of that detail. Um, and related to that, another disadvantage is sources. So um, I would love to have been, been able to dig more into sources and particularly to do more to, to kind of elevate, elevate and amplify um, the, the voices of the pastoralists themselves. Um, <laughs> that's a challenge, not just because of the scope of my study, and the detail and, and work that that would require. But it's also a challenge because these are nomads. So they tended not to write stuff down. Um, so trying to access their voices is really difficult, especially, you know, when you're, when your time frame is over a hundred years ago. Um, so I had to do a lot of kind of complicated detective work and writing around um, these perspectives to try and understand what was happening. Um, 
so it's it's less conclusive and less detailed than I would like it to be. Um, but some important things uh, appeared in my research. So, for example, even, despite the French efforts to crack down on forest fires, forest fires were more and more common in French colonial Algeria, particularly during this period um, it, it, of sort of extremely um, uh, ex- well, I, I'll just call it extreme colonization, where um, where the the local populations and nomads, not, not just nomads, but nomads and other local inhabitants, other indigenous Algerians, were very much marginalized um, and subjugated to to French rule and um, and French settlers. Um, I mean, it, it, it's generally known as the settler colonial era. Forest fires were extremely common, um, and they were common in times and places where natural causes are not very likely. Um, so, th- I mean, that's one clue that indigenous Algerians were using fire as a way to fight back. Um, the Certainly the French blamed them for fire um, during this period and, and during other periods. But I think that they're, I mean it's pretty clear that at least some of those fires were arson and were, I mean, an effort for indigenous inhabitants to fight back in the only way that they knew how. Um, But again, it's really hard to to access their voices um, and their perspectives because they tended not to write things down. And that's also true for um, the nomads or the Uruk in, um, in Anatolia uh, and to some degree, the pastoralists in Southern France as well. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and I appreciate that acknowledgement of of limitations as well. Because as as I'm running into as a historian or a historian in training, and and a lot of the discussion in my you know grad seminars are what sources are used, why did they use these sources, and and things like that. So I, I appreciate that insight because I, I think it's it it really helps open up an understanding about how challenging doing good history actually is. Um, going back to the idea of settler colonialism that, that you evoked um, just a minute ago, though, one other other point um, that really stuck out to me is the idea of, of property and property rights and kind of recreating or reconstructing landscape. Um, and, and especially in, in the way of um, the, the French logic of people, the, these these nomadic collectives don't actually have a stake in the game because they don't own the land. And so therefore they're not going to care about it or they don't have any future um, investment in it. Um, and so they decided that's where they needed to go and either close it off or, or, or make it private. Um, and it seems like this this is kind of a pattern throughout all of these three case studies. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another piece of it um, that I, that I especially look at in the, in chapter five against the grain, but um, it's kind of the classic argument of the tragedy of the commons, but my work is arguing largely against that, um, that, that it's, it's another perception and in many ways, misconception by um, French policymakers and, and French foresters um, that, uh, and, and also other French imperial agents that these, that in, indigenous inhabitants and, um, and pastoralists, mobile pastoralists in particular, aren't making efficient and sustainable and effective use of the land. Um, and this is in the broader context of intensive and ex- extensive privatization throughout Europe. So in a way, um, I mean, in, in, in France, it's, it's certainly happening. And then uh, in French colonial Algeria, and by extension, um, through the, the impact of French forest agents, um, it's, it's being applied, this mentality of privatization is being applied um, more broadly in colonial and, and imperial um, and global contexts. But uh, just, yeah, it's, it's very much um, this classic idea that um, common land is not going to be used effectively. Um, and so, for example, in, in Provence, you see the commons pretty much, I mean, which were very 
common <laughs> before the 19th century. They were really a, an essential, a critical part of every community. You see them being eliminated over the course of the 19th century. And the commons were really important for pastoralists. They were a place where pastoralists could take sheep. So especially small scale pastoralists um, after the elimination of the commons really had nowhere to take their sheep anymore. And that was a way of squeezing them out of the industry um, and and paving the way for pastoralism to be taken over by large commercial agriculturalists who would just stable sheep. They wouldn't, um, they tended not to migrate with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and to, to kind of, uh, kind of get to the, the, the end of your book and, and into the conclusion and looking beyond the uh, 19th century into the 20th century, you, you, you do observe that this is the time where in, in the 20th century, it, moves from what was sustainable exploitation to um, actual just preservation of the forests. And to some of that actually was helped by also um, better transportation along with better communication to reach into these these places that were harder to control in the in the mid 19th century. Is that do you do want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so a, a significant so going back to that original question, what happened to all the sheep? Where did they go? How how did they go there? Why did they disappear? Um, the, the state, over the course of the 19th century, the ability of the state um, to control people and environments expanded immensely. Uh, the state, in, in all three of these cases, the state, by the end of the 19th century, had a much greater reach uh, and that is through the expansion of communication and transportation networks. I mean, things like the railroad, which developed in all three of these cases, uh, as well as things like the telegraph, which expedited and facilitated communication across large distances, um, as well as new military technologies um, that allowed uh, modern states to control people you know, physically through, um, through military presence. Um, so all of these all of these features allowed the state to control populations much better than it had been able to before, and they all uh, helped the state to implement policies that effectively eliminated mobile pastoralism from all of these contexts. And um, along with those, that trend in modernization was a trend toward commercial agriculture, privatization, like I said, and industrialization. So if you looked at, um, for example, uh, Provence in the late 19th century or the early 20th century, um, the landscape would just look so different than it had uh, 100 years earlier. Um, there were a lot more people, um, especially in the summer months. Um, prior to this industrialization, urbanization, um, and privatization, uh, the the coastal regions of Provence, as well as um, to a large degree the Eastern Mediterranean, um, slightly less the, the case in Algeria, um, they were mostly deserted, and that was partly because they they could be a, a haven for malaria kill, uh, carrying mosquitoes. So um, people generally didn't settle there, uh, and pastoralists could use those regions because they migrated, so they weren't there in the summertime. Um, but I, I guess um, then I could I could add to what caused this change, um, the discovery of quinine um, as a way to combat malaria allowed people to live in these regions year round, um, and and consequently uh, greatly increased population um, around the Mediterranean coastal regions, and again squeezed out um, small small scale mobile pastoralists. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to to think about even how medicine and the history of medicine plays into all of this. And you, I mean, your book demonstrates how interconnected and intertwined all of our histories are, even though we we tend to bifurcate them through periodization or geography or nationality or race or even intellectual discourses. Um, like it, it's all it's all interconnected, and it's so it's so cool and and. One other thing that I really, really enjoyed in this throughout your book, especially at the end, is that you really are able to capture the idea that the climate 
has always been changing and people have always been in or reacting or trying to predict how to navigate the the changes because you 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 mentioned that there's always been these various forms of flooding or mudslides or fire or lo- plagues of locusts or, or epidemics that have contoured our relationship to to the natural world and and I wonder if um, this it, it, I mean can we draw lessons in the contemporary from from this period and from these these um, experiences that you're you're documenting here. Well, I hope so. <laughs> um, I, 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 and I certainly think so. Um, to be a little less facetious, um, I, I think what the policymakers and French foresters were doing in the 19th century, many of us are doing now. Again, with good intentions, we are trying to predict the future. We are making the call about um, environmental issues, uh, and. And we need to do that. It's important. The, the climate is changing and the way we're using the world is, <laughs> is not sustainable. Um, but I, what I'm trying to do with this book and this historical, to the extent that it's that this, his, this history, this story is, a, is an example and, and I hope a useful one. Um, I'm trying to show that, well, intentions don't, good intentions don't always breed good results that we need to understand the, the broader context, that we need to be very careful about the, um, the conclusions that we draw based on what we're, based on our perceptions, based on what we're seeing, what we're experiencing, um, because they can have major ramifications. And in the case of this story of um, the French environmental policy in the 19th century Mediterranean, the, the intent was at the very least to save the environment. Um, I mean, to use it sustainably, yes, but um, but ultimately to preserve it. And the result uh, was that the environment was used in a much less sustainable way. The way that mobile pastoralists had used it, um, their their use, their exploitation of the Mediterranean environment was much more sustainable. I know sustainable is a it's a tricky, thorny word, but the way that mobile pastoralists traditionally use the environment was much more sustainable than the way that commercial agriculturalists, um, timber operators, industrialists, and urban populations used the environment in the late 19th century to the present. Um, so it's a, it's a story, and I think the lesson, it, it's a useful story, I think, and the lesson is that we need to think very carefully about the conclusions that we draw and the practices that we pursue, um, because just because we have good intentions or, or because we um, want to address environmental issues um, doesn't mean that we're actually going to do so successfully if we don't understand the full context. Yeah, and, and to build off of that, the, the other lesson that I really took away from it is the idea of blame and and how blame can be used as political rhetoric in terms mm-hmm. of these colonial settlers coming in. I mean, do you want to talk about real quick just about this idea of blame and how they blamed pastoralists for for these issues? Yeah, I mean, and, and I guess <laughs> going along with that, um, I had probably too much fun with my chapter titles. Um, and, and I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. They were, they were awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you appreciated them. Um, I can tell you a, a little bit of a secret. My um, So this is based on my dissertation and my, um, my dissertation advisor, John McNeil, um, was reading these chapters and I had, I had, you know, this was when I was in grad school and I had a preliminary outline um, and I had just put those chapter titles in there. They, they're all puns. I put them in there to give myself some entertainment when I was just working really hard and it was like a fun thing to do, but I fully planned to remove them. And I think in my not sufficiently slept brain, I forgot to remove them before I sent my outline to him. And his first comment was, these chapter titles are great. <laughs> so I decided to keep them. But um, the reason that I was going to remove them is because I, I think this is a, it's a tragic story in many ways, and it's certainly a serious story. Um, and what I don't want to do 
is make it seem less important or significant or serious because I'm having fun with the titles. But at the same time, I do want it to be engaging and entertaining, um, which can be a challenge with uh, historical scholarship or, or scholarship in general. Um, and so I hope it serves that role. And then the other thing is there are just so many sheep puns out there. So it's just, you know, there's just so much to choose from um, and and that's, that really made sense for the content. So the sixth chapter is nature's scapegoats. Um, and it's totally appropriate. Uh, these, so in this case, I'm not talking literally, quite literally about goats, but more, more specifically about pastoralists. So about the shepherds um, of sheep and goats and how they were blamed for problems that they clearly had nothing to do with. Again, things like landslides, um, deforestation, um, uh, the the mistral. I mean, even the um, the the extreme wind um, in Provence, as well as in Algeria, um, and just more generally environmental problems um, that were actually large. And fire is another important one. Problems that were largely the result of modern industrial the the arrival of modern industrial society in things like commercial agriculture, um, the cork industry in Algeria. Um, and uh, and the timber industry around the Mediterranean. So these are things things that developed in the 19th century. And ironically, even as pastor as mobile pastoralists were being pushed out, they were being blamed more and more for the negative environmental impacts um, that were occurring in the regions they had used they used to inhabit. Yeah, and I, that's amazing to hear about the that the story about about your chapters. Um, ha- happy accidents, <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose. And since we, uh, since we learned a, a little bit about your, um, about your past and, and, and I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Do you want to, do you want to tell us a little bit about your future and what you have, uh, you have going on in terms of, you know, your projects looking, looking forward? Sure. Well, um, I, uh, I, like I mentioned earlier, I really enjoy these broad connective studies um, as challenging as they are, uh, because I, I think they highlight connections that are often over overlooked and that are also really important. Um, well, at least equally important to the detail um, that we that that emerges when we when we sort of hyper focus on a case study or a country um, so for my next project, uh, I have a, I'm currently working on a book project that's under contract with Rutledge, um, and it's going to be a study of the environmental dimensions of imperialism and uh, global in scope. So it's, it's actually a lot more broad um, than, than this study is, uh, but I'm really excited about it. I, I'm really excited because I think it's going to provide um, that it's going to expose patterns um, and connections that are often overlooked um, when we study, even when we study the environment and imperialism in more specific contexts and more specific periods. Um, I think being able to look globally for patterns um, as well as important distinctions. So I'm not, you know, I, I want to emphasize when I'm doing comparative studies, I'm not just trying to seek out patterns um, because I think the distinctions are really important and illuminating as well. Um, but uh, I think it's going to tell us a lot. Uh, I think it's going to tell us a lot that um, that more specific focused studies haven't. And even though there have been to, there, there the, the literature on, Environment and empire is is certainly not lacking, um, but maybe maybe because this is such a broad, ambitious project, there's really nothing um, like this out there. At least that that tries to be um, sort of a synthetic text rather than a, an anthology or edited volume. So I'm really excited about that. Um, it's it's pretty daunting, um, but the way I'm framing it is thematic. So, um, and I think that's going to help. So I'm looking, um, I'm looking first at uh, human exploitation of the environment and how that connects to imperialism. And then in the second part, 
I will look kind of at, it'll be a little bit of the environment strikes back. So environmental impacts on human populations, and that'll be things like um, environmental change, uh, environmental challenges in, in, in natural disasters, um, and their impact on imperialism and uh, imperial contexts. And then in the third part, um, kind of building on those previous two sections, I'm, I'm going to be looking at uh, the, the birth of conser- cons- well, conservationism and, and I, environmental ethics, modern environmental ethics. Um, and I think that that's important to tie to imperialism because it reminds us of some of the, the sort of darker elements in um, what I consider to be a very, very important even critical effort today in a, in a time of climate change, but it also draws attention to ways in which the non-West has contributed to, um, to contemporary idea, environmental ideals. Um, and those, those stories often get left out, even of uh, histories that claim to be global in scope or cert- at least international. Um, I think we're, we're most familiar with um, a history of empire as defined by a history of Western empires or European empires. Um, but I'm going to try to use my own expertise um, as well as that of my colleagues, and, and I'll need a lot of help um, to try and access non-Western empires and non-Western perspectives as well. <laughs> I, I love that idea of collaboration, and that sounds like such an ambition, ambitious, awesome book that I hope... Uh, <laughs> I hope when when you get it published, you can uh, you can come back on on the environmental studies uh, channel and uh, and discuss it again um, or and, and have another discussion with us. Um, but for now, to to find these uh, these patterns and distinctions, um, I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and um, pick up a copy of No Man's Land: Pastoralism and French Environmental Policy in the Nineteenth Century Mediterranean World. Um, and thank you so much, um, Andrea. This has been such a pleasure. Well, thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed chatting about the book and great questions. I really appreciate it.